I just uh, got really blessed this morning. Wonderful. Okay. Tell you another thing that's been blessing me is the uh, Rio Olympics. Has anyone been following that? I thought I wouldn't get into it so much. It's not the London Olympics, it's miles away, but actually I've started to get a little bit hooked on it. You know, and, and we're doing pretty good, aren't we? I think we're third in the medal rankings, currently third behind the usual USA and China, but we're doing pretty good for a small country. And uh, I think the first gold medal is always a special one. I loved watching is Adam Peaty uh, getting first gold, first gold in swimming for 28 years, I think. It's an amazing achievement. And, and what a way to do it. He set the new world record in the heats. And he said, I was just showing my hands. I was just, just giving the competition a little taster of what to expect. I, I thought, Crumbs, has he got anything left for the final? And then he goes and breaks the world record he had just set the time before again in the final. Amazing way to do it. It's even more amazing considering that he used to be afraid of water. Amazing as a child, terrified of water. And when he was interviewed, Adam said, you know what, it's, it's just swimming two lengths of a swimming pool. Something that I do every day of my life. It's just swimming two lengths. And then he stopped himself and he said, actually, it's years. It's the fruit of years of hard work. And that's the truth of it. You know, whatever sport these athletes are in, one thing's true, that every single Olympic athlete is not there by accident. Every single one of them has a backstory of incredible dedication and determination. A whole team of people around them, encouraging them, training them, shaping them, molding them. They've had to follow a specific, dedicated plan to get to where they are today. And I really admire that sort of focus. I really admire that sense of determination, dedication, probably because I'd like some of their drive. <laughs> I really would love some of that amazing drive that they have, that single focus. I find that really admirable. But mainly, it stirs me because I love seeing people with a vision and a plan on how to get there. I think it's so important. We all need to have a vision, something we are aiming for. Proverbs 29 says, without a vision, people perish. Where there is no vision, People perish. And it's so true. We need something to pin our hopes on. We need something to work towards. It's one thing, though, to have a dream. It's quite another to actually put a plan into action to get there. And that's one thing that these Olympic athletes have modeled. And I don't know how good you are at planning. I don't know if you're the sort of person who has the next five years of their life mapped out in their diary. I know a few people like that. You know, maybe you wake up in the morning, you grab your to-do list, and every moment of that day is scheduled and listed out. You know exactly what you're going to do. I'm sure there's some people like that. Maybe you're the sort of person who just likes to roll into tomorrow and see how it pans out. 
You know, we, we can be any, any part of that spectrum and anywhere in between. But the truth is, however we are wired, all of us make plans of some sort in our lives. It's simply part of life. Planning, scheduling, making priorities, whether that's strategically, because you want to get somewhere, or whether that's just making priorities out of habit. It's just gut feelings, just what I've always done. I don't really think about it. But all of us plan. And the reason for saying this, as you've probably guessed, is that in our series on James, James now comes to a small but very important section on how to plan well. How to plan in a godly way. How to schedule our lives well. Not just what we should be aiming for, but actually how we should be aiming for. And I think we can apply this to big life decisions, you know, big next steps like career or location. But I think we can also apply this to the everyday structure of how we run our lives. So let's read into it. Let's get straight to it. James chapter 4 going to read James chapter 4 verses 13 to 17. Joe did a brilliant job last Sunday looking at the first part of James 4 on how we deal with conflicts. And we'll see actually that although this is looking at a slightly different topic, there are threads that run right the way through. If you've got your Bibles, do turn to it. Otherwise, it will come up on there. There we go. Reading from verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Okay, so there's James in his usual, tell it like it is, abrupt manner. As Joe said last week, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? Often wonder if it was challenging to be James's friend. You know, it's just always challenging you, always bringing you up on things. But the truth is, actually, those are the best sort of friends we can have. Those who love us enough to tell us as it is. Love us enough to actually speak out. And as we've been saying throughout this series, James is giving us a reality check. In love, he's wanting us to make sure that we're not deceiving ourselves, that when we call ourselves followers of Jesus, that there is actually some evidence of the grace of God working in us and through us. In other words, that we've got a living and working faith, that it's not just playing lip service to God, but actually our lives are showing evidence of God's grace in the way, as we've seen, in the way we handle trials and difficulties in the way we use our tongues, in the way we treat one another, in the way we don't judge one another. As we saw last week, in the way we deal with conflicts, with humility and not pride. And now, James says, make sure your your life shows 
in your planning that, that, that it's actually centered around Jesus. Make sure you have a living and working faith in the way you order and direct your lives. Does your planning reflect the fact that you're a follower of Jesus? Or, or does your ambition, does your goals, does your diary and your schedule just look like everyone else's in the world? And so he gives this illustration of a merchant, of a businessman. First century Jews would have been really familiar with this. They were a nation of, of merchants. They were a nation of traders. So this would have resonated with them. He says, this businessman says, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Just to say, James here is not saying making plans is wrong. Far from it. We know in the rest of Scripture, particularly Proverbs, there's masses of wisdom about making plans and working out plans. There's real wisdom in that. We see the apostles, particularly Paul, strategically planning his missions as he evangelizes and plants churches. Planning is not wrong. That's what James is saying here. He's also not saying making money is wrong. God wants us to do well in our business. He wants us to do uh, well in our work. He wants to bless us so we can be a blessing to others. The challenge is, as we become more financially secure... So the tendency is that we can also become more self-reliant, self-sufficient. There's, there's a challenge there. There's a danger there. The truth is with greater wealth comes greater responsibility. And the danger is when making money becomes your sole aim, when all your life's plans revolve around making money, then that is wrong. Then that is wrong. But the point James is making here with this businessman is that God is simply not on the agenda here. In his planning, God is completely ignored. It's all based on his schedule, on his desires. Today or tomorrow, depends how I feel, this town or that town, with a sole aim, I'm going to make a profit. God is not in the mix. For this businessman, he is the master of his own destiny. Or so he thinks. It's like that poem in Victus. There's a line that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And it sounds wonderfully motivational. But as James points out, actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not captain of your soul. Jesus is. And to say that you are is actually total arrogance. And actually foolishness, as we'll see. But as always, reading through James, it just struck me, challenged me. How often do I plan like that? How often do I make decisions, life decisions, just totally based around what my desires are, about my schedule? And it is quite, quite shocking how often we can do that. In his commentary on James, Sam Albury says this, when it comes to planning, we can so quickly become practical atheists. Our planning revolves around us. Our self-important agendas are uppermost in our thinking. I recognize that so often. I mean, even just recently, we've been planning for Emily, our daughter's secondary school, the next stage. 
And for me, it's all been about which school has the best grades and the best facilities and the nicest feel as we've been visiting, which one has the best travel arrangements and, you know, all the normal stuff. And as Claire and I were talking and praying, it just struck me, actually, for me, God hasn't really been in the mix in this. And it struck me again that actually God has a plan for Emily's life. And he knows the best school for her to outwork that plan. And you know what? It might not actually be the best school on paper. It might not be. He's got the bigger picture. As Claire said, we just see very, you know, misted up. He sees perfectly. He knows the future. He knows how her life will unfold. And as we pray together and as this realization, actually God is sovereign. He is in control. He has a plan for her. As I submitted these plans to him, as I allowed God to take center stage in my planning and in my understanding, a real peace just came over me. Let's not plan as practical atheists, kind of giving lip service to God, but actually structuring everything around our own understanding. Because ultimately it's, it's pride that keeps us planning in our own strength, that keeps us from not planning with God at the center. It's pride because we like to be in control, or at least we like to think that we're in control. We like to have some semblance of control. And that's pride, ultimately. And we saw last week how pride is actually at the center of our conflicts. And if you're listening To Joe last week, you'll know that the answer is for us to grow in humility. To grow in humility in the way we handle conflicts. This thread runs right the way through James. We also need to grow in humility in the way we plan and the way we structure our lives around God in the center. And James really helps us here with our humility. You know, verse 14 is not the easiest verse to read. Firstly, he says, listen, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't have all the answers. It's true. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us really know what's going to happen this afternoon. You know, we have some idea. We make plans. We we can make some good assumptions. As a family, we're going off to the Globe Theatre this evening to see a play great assumption, really looking forward to it. But actually, there's no certainty. There's no real certainty. Just think of Chris Mears going back to the Olympics again. Incredibly, uh, our first gold medalist ever in diving in the synchronized, what was it, springboard? I can't remember what height it is. Amazing feat. But just, what is it, five years ago or seven years ago, I think it was, he was struck down with a life-threatening virus and given a 5% chance of survival. Incredible. I read in an article, his dad said he was sitting beside his son, praying that somehow his son would defy the 20 to 1 odds against him. 20 to 1 odds. Praise God he didn't just survive, but he went on and won this amazing medal with his diving partner. But there he was in the middle of training, suddenly struck down with this virus. We do not know what tomorrow may bring. Now, that is not 
to cause anxiety and fear in us. Okay? That is not to cause anxiety and fear in us, but rather to turn us from complacency and self-sufficient arrogance and onto the one who does know what tomorrow will bring and the next day and the day after that. The one who does know the beginning and the end. The one who holds our future in his hand. It's to turn us away from our self-sufficiency and onto the one who is the author of life. That is what James is wanting to do here. Proverbs 16 verse 9 has always been such a help for me in my planning. It's a great reminder. The heart of a man plans his way, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. Yeah, so we we have a general idea of where we'd like to go. But actually, we're totally reliant on the sovereignty of God to establish those steps. We need to remember that in our planning. He alone is sovereign. He alone is in control. He alone is good, and we can trust him. Hopefully, when we went through our series uh, on awesome God, we got a greater understanding of God and who he actually is. And if we really believe that, then surely it's just foolishness not to invite him into place center stage in our planning, in our goal setting, in our agendas. But it does call for real humility. It calls for real humility. We don't know all the answers. But thank you, God, that you do. It calls for humility. So secondly, second half of verse 14, James goes and puts our lives into a bit of perspective. He says this, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How flattering is that? <laughs> it's not very encouraging, is it? Your, your life, what is your life? You're just a mist. Comes and goes. We spend our lives working and shaping and, and molding to, to make them as successful or as comfortable or as significant as possible. Yet in the grand scheme of things, our lives are really short. Really short. It's like when you've come out of a shower and you're looking at the bathroom mirror, it's all misted up. You open up a window and woof, it's gone. All cleared. James is saying that's what our life is like in the grand scheme of things. Just a vapor. How's that for getting your arrogance in check? I've got no clue what tomorrow may bring. You know, I'm actually completely ignorant about the future and actually my life is but a puff of smoke. How encouraging is that? It gets better. But I think we need to allow that truth to sink in. Again, going back to the Olympics, I'm, I'm kind of theming this on the Olympics. I don't know if you've noticed. But those Olympians, they're, they're household names. They give the best years of their life for reaching that goal, Olympic gold, hopefully. Best years of their life. And their faces are in the paper. They're interviewed on TV. People are tweeting about them. Household names. Mo Farah. All these others, Usain Bolt. And yet, 20 years down the line, 30 years, my kids have no idea who Daley Thompson is or Carl Lewis. No idea. Next generation. Who? They're forgotten about. 
Sure, you could look them up in Wikipedia, you know, who was the shot put winner in 1978 or whatever it was. You know, it will be listed somewhere, but they're kind of forgotten about. Life moves on. Life moves on. And again, this is not to get us down and therefore think, well, what's the point on planning? What's the point on having dreams? You know, I'm just a vapor anyway. No. The point is, again, to turn our gaze from looking inward and thinking that this life in the here and now is the be-all and end-all, but actually realizing that your life is part of something much, much greater than your own personal achievements. That actually you're part of a plan that doesn't just revolve around you, but actually revolves around Jesus and his purposes. That your significance goes way beyond your personal achievements in this life. It goes on into eternity. In fact, your significance is rooted in one man's achievement and one man's achievement alone, and that is Jesus' victory on the cross. That is where your significance lies. You know, and through that one achievement, you have an eternal destiny. You have a royal inheritance. You've got a God-given mandate on this earth, in this short life, to actually reveal the love of God to those around us, to tell this message of grace to the world around us. Doesn't it make sense, therefore, to invite God into our planning, to help us keep this eternal perspective, to help us keep this bigger picture. Yes, our lives on this earth are short, but we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves, something that goes on into eternity. It's just the front cover. I think C.S. Lewis described. This life is just the front cover. We've got to keep that eternal perspective in our planning. That's why James goes on to say in verse 15, you know, therefore you ought to say, if the Lord wills, seek his will, seek his face, seek his ways. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Not just some sort of tagline little slogan you add on the end of your own plans. You know, I've done that as well. You plan and make your decisions based on your own desires, and then you just tag on, if God wills. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a complete heart attitude. Humbly acknowledging everything that James has been saying about us, understanding us, that actually we don't have all the answers, but then getting a right view of God, understanding that he does have all the answers, that he does have a plan for my life. In fact, he's the sustainer of my life. And so we can come to him and say, God, I know you are the one who establishes my steps. I'm seeking you to guide me, to lead me, to shape my desires, to shape my goals. We can pray that God will give us dreams shaped by the Holy Spirit. And then pray that God will empower us to walk in those steps. That is God-centered planning. Good planning comes from having a right view of ourselves and also a right view of God. And therefore, it should look 
pretty different from those who don't know God. It should look pretty different. The challenge is, does it? Does it? Do your dreams, do your life's ambitions. Does your daily schedule actually look any different from those who don't know Jesus? Or does it show that actually you are seeking God's will every step of the way? You're seeking God's will for your next steps. I think it's worth pointing out that sometimes those next steps are not always black and white. I think a lot of the time they're not black and white. They're very gray, particularly when we're looking at big decisions, big life decisions. Sometimes it's not always easy. You know, it's lovely when we get specific words from people. So I really feel this is God's word for you. And then it's, you know, backed up by someone else. It's wonderful when that happens. It's wonderful when you get a passage from scripture that leaps off its page and really speaks into your situation. It's wonderful. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes you're just like, I don't know the next step. And basically, I'll just give you two, two bits of advice, really. Firstly, seek godly counsel. We're not designed to be islands. God's put us into community with one another. Seek godly counsel. Ask people to pray with you and in this decision so you're not alone. And secondly, check your heart. Look at your heart. Be honest with yourself. What is actually driving this decision? Is there any hint of selfish ambition in it? Or can you say, no, I am simply seeking to fulfill God's call on my life. And if you know in your heart it's the latter, and the godly counsel that you've invited to speak into your life is in agreement, then make that step. Make that next step. Knowing that actually God is big enough to close the door if it's wrong, to look after you, to continue to provide and protect you. He's big enough. We can make that step in confidence. But just check your heart. What's driving this decision? The truth is, however we come to the decisions that we make in our life, our plans, our schedules, our agendas, we need to make sure God is center stage throughout. And I believe this goes for the big decisions, but as well as our day-to-day stuff. I remember my wife Claire wrote a, a blog on asking God to order your day. And I think that can be one of the most productive things we can start our day by doing. Praying, God, order my day. I've got so many things to do. Help me to prioritize. Help me to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Great way to start your day. Because you'll find out that God actually does give us enough hours in the day to do what he's called us to do. It's the day-to-day stuff. God, be center of my planning. The key is to keep humble and reliant on God because otherwise we'll just end up burnt out. Or as, as James goes on to say in verse 16, boasting about our own achievements. Look at all I can do. And she says that is not just arrogance, it's also sin. It's also sin. And often we think of sin as doing stuff that we shouldn't do. But actually, verse 17, he finishes this section by also saying, it's also sin not to do stuff that we should be doing. As the people of God, there's things that we should be doing. And if our schedules 
are squeezing stuff that we know we should be doing out, then we need to refocus our schedules. There's stuff that we need to be committed to, like spending time with God. Number one, in his word, in prayer. Big one for me is making sure I'm spending time with my family. Making sure I'm being a good husband and a good father. Prioritizing that. So easy for that to get squeezed. Spending time being a good friend. Spending time with believers so that we get built up and encouraged. The writer to Hebrews, Hebrews 10 says, do not neglect meeting together because we need to be encouraged. We need to be built up. Do you prioritize life group? Do you prioritize Sunday mornings? Or has your schedule got so busy that actually it's, it's just getting a bit difficult at the moment? It's just seasonal, just getting a bit busy. Just encourage you, have a look at your priorities. Spending time with unbelievers, that's a big one for me, obviously, working in the church. Do I prioritize spending time with those outside the church so I can be an influence, I can be salt and light? You know, there's so many things, but my prayer is that each one of us will just invite the Holy Spirit to say, come and be center of my schedule. If there are areas in my life that I need to reprioritize, give me the boldness, give me the strength to do it. Let's not squash out stuff that we should be doing. And I'm having to constantly look at my schedule all the time. But the truth is we're not captains of our souls. Our plans should be totally driven by the fact that our lives are not our own. We've been singing about it. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought at a price. We've been created for a purpose, for a mission, for eternity with him, with God. So I just want to finish really by reading Colossians 3, first four verses. I'm going to read it in the message because I love the way it paraphrases this. I think it just helps tie this together. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That is where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. I love that last line. He is your life been singing. We've died to ourselves. We're now alive in Christ. He is our life. That should be reflected in our planning, in our agendas, in our goals, in the way we structure and schedule our daily lives. He is your life. Again, the theme of James is to keep drawing us back to, to, to Jesus, back to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. His desire is to use us imperfect vessels for his perfect work. The truth is, without the cross of Jesus, without the good news of the gospel, 
the book of James would be a pretty crushing book. It would be pretty crushing. Yet because of Jesus, because of the fact that he has redeemed us, he has chosen us, he's empowered us, James is actually a call to a better life, to a greater reality. We need to lift our eyes up, away from shuffling along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the here and now, and get God's perspective, get his clarity, this eternal perspective. James, in this passage, lifts our heads to see the bigger picture, that actually in your planning there is more at stake than just your comfort or success or glory. But actually, when we refocus our planning around him, around Jesus and, on, and onto his mission, that's when we will see real fruit. That's when we will see real satisfaction. <clears throat> that's when we will see real blessing. And that is God's heart for us. Amen.